Can you imagine your life where money is your friend, working with you to achieve all your dreams and desires? If you struggle seeing money as your friend, then join Kathy Cook Noble, financial advisor and educator on understanding how your money can work for you. It is possible. Now, here is Financially Speaking with Kathy Cook Noble. Good afternoon and welcome to Financially Speaking on the Inspired Choices Network. I'm your host, Kathy Cook-Noble, and every week we get together and we dissect and discuss and sometimes uh, argue about different financial concepts that people uh, are confused about or intimidated by or just need some clarification on. And what we do here on Financially Speaking is we just take that and we break it into everyday language because like I always tell everybody, you 100% can understand your own stuff. It's not necessary for you to understand what's going on with your family, your friends, your neighbors, what's happening on Facebook and what you think is happening in their life. What matters is that you understand your own stuff and you definitely can do that. So that's what we do here every week. And on the Inspired Choices Network, we take a holistic approach. And my little part of the world is the financial part, but the other hosts are wonderful uh, experts on their topics of relationships or business or coaching or anything else that you're looking for. So I encourage you to plug yourself in and don't forget to download the app because it's absolutely free. You can be with us all the time. So if you're not listening to it live, you're certainly welcome to join us in the um, recording part of our podcast, which is on over 200 platforms, or you might even be looking at us because we're now on TV. So that's kind of cool too. So download the app. It's absolutely free for Androids and for iPhones. And uh, every once in a while on our show, we get some guests and I'm going to jump right in because I have to. Well, it confess. sounds very good. Thanks for having me. I am like this. I have to confess a little bit. Tonight is a real treat for me because we have a real live Wall Street Titan um, who has really spent um, a remarkable career, like just beautiful career when you read about it and has just got an amazing story to share with us with his new book. So I'm going to jump in and introduce my very, very special guest, Ed. Hey, Jim, and welcome to the show, Ed. It's so, so wonderful to have you here tonight. Nice to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Look forward my to having very, some My pleasure, for sure. Uh, for people who don't know, I'm going to just give a tiny background, Ed, and I'm going to let you jump in and tell your story, because it is something truly that Hollywood hasn't come up with a story like this. And that's one of my questions, is if they are going to have a story like this, maybe based on your life. <laughs> so we'll Sean Connery about. died, so we're having a little trouble with the leading man. So. Oh, <laughs> see, and I could see that. He would, he would be great. I have a Sean Connery story for you, then. That you'll find kind of interesting. Um, so Ed was at the age of three, and he was kidnapped by his father. He was driven cross-country in the United States, and he was told by his father that his mother had passed. Uh, Ed he pressed his face against the car window. He watched the miles pass and he had no way of knowing at that very tender age where his life was going to take him. And for, that's the part of the story I'm going to leave for Ed to tell the rest, because this is one of those stories that could go in any direction. And, and you, in your book, Ed, you quote one of my favorite poems about the road less traveled and you, you, you know, the, you took the road less traveled in so many ways. So I'm excited to hear from you. Please share your little bit of background there and uh, we'll talk about your life experiences on Wall Street, how you overcame all this adversity. Um, you've really, the mental ability that you have to have to be able to handle this, I think is in, extremely impressive and uh, encouraging and inspirational on so many levels. So share with us a little bit about 
uh, your story and, and your book that you just now published? Well, my book was, my book was something that I was never going to do. At age 18, you know, leaving the final orphanage, I decided I was going to bury my background forever. And when I got to be 75 or so, my wife and my daughter and my, my sons said, we've got to put this on paper. And uh, I, I finally attempted it. And I was going to just print a book for, you know, 100, 100 family and friends. And uh, I sent the galleys out. I just got an enormous return saying, this is, this is something that every freshman, in every college ought to read or every senior in high school. So I went forward. It took me seven years to write out two other manuscripts, which I'm hoping to come out with. But just to take what Kathy said and, and capture this, this, this life of mine, which I almost don't believe. And by the way, I had a great deal of difficulty writing about what Kathy was talking about. Uh, because uh, uh, it was a very difficult thing. My daughter actually wrote the first draft. And we, I basically luckily kept every letter that my father wrote me. And when he died, I had a box and basically had every letter that I wrote him. So we had some pretty good you know, information. You find when you write a book, you first of all have to communicate what you want to communicate. But you also got to recognize the reader has to be able to read exactly what you want to talk about. And so, you know, putting these two things together and separating facts from what you remember was very important. Anyway, at age, dad lost all his money in 29. He came as, a, he came as an immigrant, did extremely well. And by 29, he had everything. In fact, in the book, you'll see these pictures next to his airplane, which was very unusual in those days. 2933 took everything, including his mother. Mother died during that period. He was very close to his mother, much closer to his mother than his father. And as when he, in 1933, as he told me, he said, I had a decision between committing suicide and driving to California. And he decided to drive to California. Thank God for that, or I wouldn't be here. And on the way, he stopped at a cousin's house, totally unwelcome, because in 1933, nobody wanted to see anybody, because everybody was extremely poor, it was in the middle of the horrible depression. And uh, after being there for two weeks, he shockingly fell in love with the fifth of, of, the, of their six children, an 18-year-old young lady. And they got married, which was, you know, he had a car, he was very good looking, and she wanted to get out of the house because it wasn't a comfortable place. And off they went to California. And things went from uh, bad to worse. And after three years, the only real happiness, according to my father, was that I was born in 1936. And uh, then mother and dad just didn't get along. He was, if, you, if you're a reader of Julian Uris, he resembled the Hodge, the fellow named Abraham. It was his way or the highway. He had unusual eating habits. He was very difficult. He wouldn't let my mother work. And in 1939, given the fact that she was a very strong woman, she just got to get divorced. And nobody got divorced in those days. Got divorced, got cust complete custody, legal custody of me, and drove me from Los Angeles to St. Louis. And he got visiting rights on Sunday and $5 a, a week of alimony and child support. And he arrived to his first visit and found that I was so-called unkept and put me in his car, and instead of taking me to a movie or a playground, he drove me to California, and as Kathy said, he kidnapped me, basically. A few weeks later, or some period later, he told me my mother had passed away, and I would never see her again. Being three years old, what, what did I know? What did that mean? Anyway, uh, at that point in time, he was a merchant marine and had to go to sea, so for the next two years, we spent about half time together, and we were real buddies. It was fun, and, uh, but I spent half the time with a neighbor lady, named Mrs. Benson. And when the war broke out though, he was drafted or he had volunteered to become a naval an officer on the in a merchant marine fleet as a radio operator. And essentially 
I was put in foster homes, Catholic foster homes. And uh, during the entire war period, I didn't see him. And, and I went, you know, ended up in five Catholic, Catholic foster homes. Either he wasn't paying the bills or I was an extremely difficult kid. And a couple of my report cards in the Catholic school said, Eddie's a smart boy, but, but he's so mischievous, we really can't tell. And I guess I was, you know, a trouble troublemaker. After the war ended, uh, I ended up in a very, uh, first foster home was terrible, really out of a Dickinsonian almost. But by the final foster home, the fifth one was actually quite good. I only spent six months there. They were lovely people. And, but my father wanted me back and I flew across country again. He had a good gift of gab. So I was able to talk to airlines and flying a 10 year old on a DC 10 back to New York in those days, five stops. And uh, I got to New York and, and he was still quite an angry man. We spent the summer in the YMCA on 34th Street. And I, you know, half the time by myself because he was looking for land-based work. Come September, we moved to Coney Island to a hotel. And I went to school there for a year. It was a good year for me. School worked out very well. I enjoyed the school. But it was not good for my father. He had to go back to sea. And uh, actually, that summer, you'll find the book that there was a period of time, three or four weeks, where I actually spent by myself alone in New York in that hotel, which was quite an experience. But being a 10-year-old or 11-year-old in those days was somewhat different than it is today. And uh, so he had to put me in an orphanage, and I reported to an orphanage in Far Rockaway. Uh, spent three or four years there, and I aged out of there. And my father disappeared when I got to be 15 years old. So I became a ward of the state and then ended up in another orphanage in Yonkers, New York, which was a real break. Uh, the orphanage in Far Rockaway had the 50 of us in one room. And in, when I went to the orphanage in Yonkers, there was only three of us, three boys in one room. And it was four blocks from a fantastic high school, Theodore Roosevelt High School, public high school. And uh, I guess in my sophomore year, I decided the ticket out of this situation was private college. And so I put my head down. I was a varsity athlete. I did very well in math and science. And I, was, I got an NRTC scholarship to the University of Rochester. I'll stop there. You, you can Visualizing it at my grammar school graduation from PS 104 in Farakway, no one showed up. I have no siblings whatsoever, no aunts, no uncles. My father was at sea. And then my high, high school graduation, the same thing. Uh, he didn't show up for my high school graduation. He was at sea. And I had nobody basically there. To, to, it was a tough situation. And I, it, it built in a, a bit of anger in my body. But, on, but overall, looking back, and that's what's good about the book, is these disadvantages I just described, and they're more vividly described in the book, basically became advantages. I mean, if you spend 15 or 20, you know, in the first 18 years, if you spend 50, yourself in 15 or 20 different places, you develop adaptability. You almost, you understand change. You, you seek change. In fact, I always kid about this, but you go from one Catholic school schoolyard to another one, you sure as heck learn how it is to adjust. You learn how, who you can beat up and who beats up you and just how to get along. I did that 15 or 20 times in the first 18 years. So in my business life, when you know change came, whatever it had to be, whether changing firms or changing jobs or just taking a, making a change, it was easy, relatively easy for me. And also you develop resilience. Resilience is like a muscle if you use it a lot, which I did as a child, you gain it. You gain perseverance. You gain you know, self-reliance. Since you're all alone, you have to rely on yourself and you learn how to do that. And then I guess... Most importantly, you become a person who basically, there's nothing you can't overcome. 
And of course, everything in life is always a little bit better. You know, you, you go from a place where there are 50 kids in a room to three kids in a room. When I got to college, my first year was terrible, but the only two of us in the room and the food was better and, you know, everything was better for me at college than it was ever in my life. So things continue to improve. And it's, I've been very lucky in that case. I could stop right there before we get to the, the rest of the life. But basically, I got to the University of Rochester. It was very bumpy. You know, I had black, black leather jacket and all the wrong clothes. And the only thing I had was a naval NROTC scholarship. And those days, rushing at fraternities was the first week. And I got rejected by all the fraternities. I look different. I act different. But most importantly, when I'm, I try to get across to foster kids when I talk to them, I'm doing a lot of talking to foster kids and kids from orphanages, is you feel differently. You got to get over that because you aren't much different than those other kids. Maybe they had a little different life. They learned to ride a bicycle or swim or whatever else you didn't. But you're, you're really the same. And by my sophomore year, I was off and running. And, and I can describe my college life. with I flourished. I really flourished. But I didn't tell anybody about my background. Uh, a little bit of denial really helps because it cut out a lot of conversation. It cut, about, cut a lot of explanation out. My father was a merchant marine. We lived in a post office box in San Francisco. My mother died when I was three. End of conversation. And I wouldn't go any further than that. Of course, in some, one of my girlfriends said, you're awfully dark. Well, but that was kind of maybe good in those. But that respect, girls kind of like guys who are a little dark. So I got along pretty yeah. well. I'll yeah. stop there, Kathy. I always, my daughter who, is in, who works for TED Talks always says, Ed, you answer the questions too long. And give somebody else a chance to answer, ask you questions, which is probably more important. So, Kathy, I'm going to turn it back to you. You know, Ed, I, I can totally understand because your story is so amazing. And uh, honestly, I could just listen to you and I wouldn't have any problem at all having to have to be <laughs> on the other end. <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear your story live. Uh, your your book is uh, is beautifully written. And uh, I, I read that. I remember the part when you said about your daughter having to have to read that, write, write that part for you. And, you know, dealing with that because that is difficult. Uh, we're we're going to take our first break of the, the night, but when we come back, I want to ask you, because uh, you, you, you stated it like it was so easy to do. Uh, a lot of people could wallow in any number of different situations that you went through and could have turned to drugs and alcohol and, you know, a whole different kind of lifestyle that you chose not to do. And it's, you made a very deliberate conscious decision to get yourself say, you know, that was your way out to go to college. And you made a very conscious decision to do that and get the grades where you see and hear a lot of stories where people don't and they they go through these very dark um, self uh, uh, mutilating almost. Um, no, you, you, have, you have to turn the anger toward being successful yeah. rather than turning it externally on other people. I turn Absolutely. that anger that I had on, I, I'm going to be successful, but also I had other help. My father, regardless of he abandoned me three times, he still, on, in his letters and in his conversations, always supported me. I was always the greatest. The nuns at the Catholic school, they showed me that if you were good, you did okay. If you weren't so good, you didn't do okay. You know, the movies in those days, it was, it was very different in those days. The movies, they, the good guys always won. You know, That's right. <laughs> you know, John Wayne, you know, or, 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 or even Jimmy Stewart, they always won. And so that Saturday afternoon was, a, you know, you said, that's what I want to do. I wanna, you know, I want to be that kind of ride off into the sunset, you know, and that helped an awful lot. And then, of course, you know, uh, we're going to a high school where in case Theodore Roosevelt in those days had 80 percent of kids were going to private colleges. I had examples, you know, and I had a lot of, you know, I, I wouldn't listen to many people in those days because I was very self-reliant. But I, I could I was in that mix. 
and 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 the girls that I dated in high school and the, the and I on the basketball team, those guys, you know, they all going to try to go to a private college, and that that was the, that was the answer, and I that's why I'm 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 a zealot on 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 education. It's a solution to almost everything or everything. I you speak my language on that. I love school, um, and my mom always even this week she's like I thought you'd be done uh, school by this age. And I'm, I said, I did too, but I don't think you ever finished school. So lifelong um, learning. It's absolutely more now than ever before. Absolutely. And there's, and you can learn so much, so much faster. It feels like it's almost hard to keep up, but uh, we're going to take our first break. Do not go anywhere. We have Ed with us for the entire night. Um, We are going to be back in just a few minutes so don't go anywhere you're listening to financially speaking on the inspire choices network we'll be right back too many of us get caught up in the unreal lives of reality television and complete to acquire stuff which is setting us up to accumulate lots of debt we're scared confused and don't know who to talk to by tuning into Financially Speaking Radio Show with financial advisor and educator Kathy Cook Noble, you'll learn tips you can use to improve your financial health, which in turn can improve your overall health and make for a very happy life. Live a life you can afford and enjoy. It is possible. Listen for Financially Speaking Radio Show every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Mountain, and 1 p.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. This is the Financially Speaking Show with financial advisor and educator Kathy Cook Noble. To participate in the program, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email by sending to Kathy at bookkeepplus.ca. Now back to the program. Good afternoon and welcome back to Financially Speaking on the Inspire Choices Network. I'm your host, Kathy Cook-Noble, and we have a very special gift tonight because uh, we have Ed Hagem with us, who is a uh, former Wall Street uh, financial guru. He just wrote a book uh, about his past, and I, I want to talk to you about Wall Street, and I have to admit, uh, I'm just a little bit starstruck because I've been to Wall Street, um, being a big fan of the financial industry, and watching, you know, the different financial programs and reading the books. And, and it's just a, an energy down there that I thought was it's different than anything else I've ever seen. So or felt so I want to ask you, uh, you know, how, how you feel about Wall Street now and the changes with uh, the way the world's moving in terms of different kinds of cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all this new stuff that's happening. Do you, do you still stay active with uh, I know you're, you're, uh, you're still chairman of your company and you're I 
I suspect having had a few minutes talking to you that you're very active and keeping up to date and learning new things all the time. And the rate of change that we see happening with information today is, is incredible. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on all this social media? And, I mean, and you're right on. In fact, as we, we, we basically have, it's a, it's a, it's a more difficult process than it's ever been because of all the things you just enumerated. The, the rate of change is, is greater than it's ever been. There's much more, less human and more machine involvement. There's, you know, the international market is wide open. You know, when I started in the business, you know, you were, the commissions were 25 cents a share. You know, I, I was a, one of two people that went to the mutual fund industry in 1964. And when I went to a company, instead of it being, you know, starting to pry out answers, the, they opened up the books and showed me exactly what was gonna happen. It's a totally different experience. And you, you could buy, you could find a trend and, you know, buy a stock and, you know, six months later would come home, wouldn't, wouldn't be the next morning. Uh, you know, there wasn't the, you, you know, you, you look at oil, you get $10 a barrel. This is a trillion dollar commodity, you know, it moves in two days. So it's a very different market today. You know, I was very lucky because I, I've actually touched all the bases. And that's one thing I wrote this book about. I, I was an analyst. I was a portfolio manager president of a mutual fund company. I ran an institutional business. I ran an entire you know, brokerage business. Then I became a CEO and a chairman of a, of a small investment bank, which was a, a, the greatest experience of all. And for nearly over almost 20 years, I, I grew that bank and I therefore got involved in all of the processes, which the most important process, which you've already mentioned, is change. If I didn't change that firm almost every year toward the right direction, we'd be out of business. The same thing with portfolios today, although we still should recognize that over the long term, there still is a long-term process that stocks and certain kinds of fixed income securities still will take, will allow you to overcome inflation. And that's of course, I went into the mutual fund business in 1964 when the largest mutual fund was only a billion dollars. I went to a little company in California called Capital Research, which only had $350 million on the management. And then I only had 15 people. Now there are two trillion. Now you can yeah. see that I'm a smart guy. I should have stayed there and never moved, <laughs> but it was a different, I guess, a different path for me. I had to had to go out and fool around and take. I, I I've had so many jobs uh, over the past uh, 50 years that people wonder whether I have a trouble keeping a job. But as you go through the book, you'll see each time that I changed, there was good reason. The only yeah. non-good reason for leaving was capital research. I actually made a mistake there. I, I spun myself off into my own mutual fund. It was a joint venture. Joint ventures are always very difficult. I made some big mistakes. And that's the only place I really left that I hadn't done a good job. The other places, there are other reasons. And I can go into those, we can, Kathy, if you, those are of interest you, we can dig, dig in those. But, but in today's world, the, the other thing which is, which is really different is there are just so many alternatives. I mean, yeah. I, ran, I ran the University of Rochester's endowment for 15 years. And you look at the spread of, of what you can invest in. I mean, start off with, you know, just treasury bills and work your way over here to venture capital. And there are 15 or 20 things in between private equity. One of the things we've done quite a bit at my new company is private credit, which people don't, we know almost didn't exist in a while back. The banks did it all. Now private credit's a very interesting asset class. You know, the commodities now become an asset class. I hate to say it, crypto is an asset. They haven't been recognized yet, but you're seeing major players now put crypto into their portfolios. 
And in America, we're going to have trouble understanding crypto as a currency. But if you're in El Salvador or Argentina or other places like that, you know, crypto has a certain place. So I, I, mean, I, I think it's going to have a problem in the next few years because when these new situations come into vogue, they do very well. Then there's a period of where they don't do very well. You know, if I, I go back, you know, in, in, in when I started the business, the over-the-counter business. Well, I remember buying, I was buying stocks in the over-the-counter. And the, the, guys, the guys like me were saying, don't do that. You, no one should be in the over-the-counter market. And of course, it did very well in the late 60s. And then it had a comeuppance. All right. You go back to, to people maybe more recognize what happened in, in, uh, in the, late, the late 90s when you had all the e-companies and Amazon and things like that. Amazon did extremely well in the 90s, but people don't remember, they forget. Amazon went from $100 a share to $10 a share in 2001, 2002. And of course, is now one of the great companies in the world. So these, yeah. so that's why I'm, I'm worried about crypto on a near-term two or three-year basis where it has a comeuppance. And we don't understand crypto completely as to the amount of leverage, the amount of margin that's in crypto yet. So yeah. when things get ugly and people start getting margin calls, crypto could have a problem. And it is volatile. So NFTs are the most interesting things I've come across in a long time. And I must say, I'm still a neophyte. I, uh, I'm, I'm dealing with what's nice about NFTs is you get a chance to really talk to a lot of young people and listen to yeah. them. Crypto too, by the way, beyond Bitcoin, if you go into Solana or some of these other ones, you have to talk to a really young person. And I yeah. go back into the 60s when we had, you know, when things got a little crazy with the conglomerates and things like that. And the, the concept was you had to have a money manager who was under 40. <laughs> you could nobody over 40. When I actually, when I graduated the business school and they taught the investment management course, it was as much about bonds as it was about stocks. And here we were on our way to, you know, 40 years of declining interest rates. So the change in a business is quite big. You know, it, it was simpler when I went. I mean, today I wouldn't recommend young people necessarily, unless they really love it, going to these very large financial institutions. Because when I went, you know, to Lehman Brothers or Morgan Stanley at the time, they had 20, 30 million dollars worth of capital. And, you know, five, maybe three, four hundred, five hundred people. Today, they have 30,000, 40,000 people. So, you know, I'm more inclined to go to a place where I, I get more responsibility. You know, hedge funds, venture capital, some of these smaller brokerage firms. I think I, there's more excitement there as far as I'm concerned. And that's really the difference. In my day, you know, you'd go to almost any small firm and you got a lot of responsibility right away. Uh, yeah. These big firms, and I, you can't knock J.P. Morgan. It's a great firm. Jamie Dimon oh, yeah. is running a fabulous shop, and there are parts Brilliant. of it that are very exciting. But it's just a great big place. And I've always been an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, finding a place where, you know, I, I tell young people, forget what they call you. Ask what you're going to do Monday morning. What are you physically going to do? And in my book, I describe my decision to become an analyst rather than an investment banker in 1964. When I graduated from college, from uh, business school, you know, they said, well, you know, analysts are gophers and investment bankers are, are eagles. I remember the guy telling Matt who was trying to, be, to hire me as an investment banker. I said, what do I really do? He said, well, he said, I'll show you. He took me down into the basement and there were, you know, no windowed room with three other guys there doing, doing work. He said, you work here for eight years, then you'll be a partner and, and you'll fly. And I, I said, and I went out to the capital resources. What do I do? They said, well, Three months, you'll be on a plane talking to presidents of companies. So I said, make sure you, you, you what they call you is not important. Well, Kathy, you know. 
you know, yeah. people be nobody wanted to be a broker. You know, it was a horrible experience or a wealth manager. It's one of the That's great right. jobs in the world. You you have yeah. a chance to meet nice people. You're helping nice people. You have an intellectual, what I call an intellectual video game every day, because everything's changing every day, and you yeah. get results. You know whether you're helping people or not. I think it's a great experience. With today's information, every day is exciting. And by the way, if, if I turn my other screen on, you would see I have a full Bloomberg screen. I have six Bloomberg screens. I, it's a disease. I, I admit it. I just love it. I mean, I, I, yeah. I was a strategist for over 20 years. I love talking about the market. And it was a great experience because when you talk about it, you know, a month to month, a year later, you're either right or wrong. And it's kind of a nice result or you kind of you comb your way through it. I, I love that experience. And I travel the world talking about the market. I still do. Well, I'm shifting now more to the, my book because I really want to, my focus is young yeah. people. I want to try to get them through that 17 to 25 year old period, which I can, what you just talked about. You can go very wrong during that period yeah. or you can go very right. And just helping them through that, that get them over a couple of bumps is more important to me, but I still love the stock market. I'm not as anywhere near as qualified as I used to be because it was a full-time experience. And Zoom has done wonder for me because I actually formed a bunch of investment groups, which when, when toward, no, I don't know, five or six years ago, I started throwing me out of them because I refused to go to the meetings anymore living in Florida. Now with Zoom, they've invited me back in again. So I'm getting more qualified. So that's a little bit about, I think that's a little bit of an answer. It's, 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 I think it's a difficult at more equation. And I think people like yourselves and investment managers are more important than they've ever been. When I went into business, there were individuals who weren't in the business. They were very smart. They knew about industries and companies that could invest on their own. And brokers were, you know, much more knowledgeable in those days. They didn't need as much help. It was a much simpler market. And we didn't have machines. Yeah. You know, machines have changed things quite a bit. And, you know, algorithms and, and, uh, and index funds, things like that, they've really changed the game. And, you, you know, the index funds didn't exist. And if you look at things, which I've never been a big proponent of index funds, but they've done pretty well. So, you know, if you're not sophisticated and you don't have the time, there are indexes which you can, you know, be involved in. I, yeah. I argued, I have a couple of my friends have been big players in index funds. And I, I said, there are periods of history, though. That's why you need a financial advisor. From 1966 to 1983, you know, 16, 17 years, if you were an index, you made no money. I was yeah. around the world talking to people about indexicide. Now, since that time, it's been fabulous. You know, and, you know the Dow Jones was 600. It's now, you know, 30,000. So, you know. You could have just stuffed it away. Now, there have been some pretty big bumps in there, but if you close your eyes, you're okay. And, you know, but I, I find that what we, the individual needs someone to talk to who's spending time on his or her particular problem. That's a little long answer, a short question again. My daughter would criticize me. <laughs> you know what, though? I, I, I completely appreciate it because I share your enthusiasm with it. I have, I turn my screen off. So uh, when I'm, when I'm doing the show, I don't get distracted <laughs> because uh, I, I follow it too. I love have the it. Disease. I, I could see it. <laughs> I have the same disease. I love it. I have the same disease of school. Um, and I want to ask you about that because I know one of your essays, I read that you talked about why people don't have to go to college or maybe shouldn't go to college um, and about the trades and the importance of uh, education, and I almost think it's the definition of education that people have. When you hear it, you think automatically some kind of post-secondary education, whether it's a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. 
that seems to be what people equate education to. And I always think that education is, is not so much about the piece of paper you get, but more about what you're learning and, and how you're using it and how you're sharing it really with other people. And the trades has been a huge conversation lately. Um, and I know you've talked about it with, and the importance of uh, the trades industry and, and that's reading your market with your 17 to 25 year olds where they're trying to figure exactly. out exactly right, what do I do? You, can, you should exercise your passion. And I, I can talk about the yeah. four P's, but finding what you really want to try and want what you really want to do. And it, I mean, I want to change the word from trades or vocational, but vocational yeah. education to me is one of the solutions. One of, one of America's problems, the solution to one of America's big problems, putting people to work. And, you know, I, we, I'm, this is, this is a mini crusade of mine. And, it, and I wrote an article, which nobody would print except the Nantucket paper. But I see more articles coming out now that, similar to it saying it's easier to get an appointment with your doctor than your electrician. And we wrote that article. It's an yeah. excellent article. And it and then took a golf club where I was a founder and found the founder member number one and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, we now have, we, we, we used to give two academic scholarships a year for the first 15 years. We're now doing seven vocational scholarships. And for example, we do a shift that wants to go to Johnson Wells. It's $40,000 a year. You know, it's, it's, so it's really worthwhile. But if a, a young man or a young woman wants to be a chef, he shouldn't be studying Western European history, 14th century Western European history, but it'd be a chef and or right. electrician or a carpenter or a plumber or, or you know, a, you know, one of the most important things, when, if you think about in the morning, you got a sore arm, it's terrible. But if your computer doesn't work, that's the worst. You need somebody to yeah. come and help you. That whole cadre of people that can service computers are very, very important. And it's gonna, you know, it's, it changes continually with the different type devices that come out. So I'm a big, big zealot on vocational education. I've, I've got a couple, and the American Society of Mechanical Engineers is now pushing towards it. And because for every one engineer, you need four or five technicians. And, you know, they're just as important to the problem as the engineer himself or herself. Uh, I'm big, big on women engineers too. My school is, <laughs> Is now we started with no no women in, in the Hagem School of Engineering. We're now up to almost forty percent. So I think oh, that, wow. that we we scared them away. You know that was the problem. You know, when I went to school, yeah. there was there wasn't a woman professor or a woman student in engineering. And you know I think it's a really big mistake because there are parts of engineering like computer science and biomedical engineering. We actually I think the ga the gals with the women will do better than the men. There's a, there's a sort of sense in there. But yeah. I really believe in this whole idea of picking an, a, an area that you really love and want to go into. And there's no standard thing for everybody. And, and by the way, as time goes on, there are requirements for new jobs, new vocational jobs that we never had before. We never had anybody service our computers, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, we didn't, I mean, iPhone didn't exist 20 years ago. And there's all kinds of, and it, there, were, there were diseases now that didn't exist like Alzheimer's. There'll be a whole series of people required to service that community, you know, memory units now. They didn't have memory units back then. A friend of mine just unfortunately put his wife in a memory unit. There are specialized people there that have to be trained to handle that kind of problem. So I, I want people in their late teens to start to think about their passion, think about their talents, think about what they really want to do, and also think about the context of their life. What in the next 40 to 50 years, and what's going to happen and what 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 part of that do they what part do they want to play in it? Yeah. And, you know, I because I, you, you, there are so many areas that you can get into that are more interesting and different and so forth by looking ahead and saying, I want to do that. Not necessarily. The college is not necessary. 
We probably have too many colleges and not enough vocational institutions. We're, I'm involved in, in the Keys down here. We just constructed a, an upper Keys community college. We trained first responders. And I'll tell you, there's a woman policeman that gave a talk on, 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 on our video this year, off the charts, really excited about being, you know, a, a policeman. I mean, a police person, a police woman. And she was just <laughs> fabulous. In addition, we're training, training nurses there. We're training marine engineers because we're down here near the water. And these, these people are just so excited about coming in and, and doing the work. Most of them, a lot of them are doing it at night because they work and so forth. And so it's very productive. And I, I think that's the kind of thing we need more of. And I think we're get, getting more of it. America responds and they are responding. I've, I've been in contact with a lot of the, the you know, the, the so-called community colleges and they're all moving in that direction now. So I think it's, it's exciting. But I'm involved personally in these two off grade one here in the Keys, one up, up in Nantucket. And I think it's very satisfying. You watch the kids. They're really excited about what they're doing. You know, they, they're happy. Because they're that's doing awesome. something they want to do. That, that's awesome. And it's so important. Uh, you mentioned the four P's and you talk about it in your book. And the first one was passion. And maybe we can talk about the other three P's because you mentioned those. You mentioned the third one, which was well, heart. I, I, th I think there's only one constant in life. This sounds rather you know, puffy, but it's your inner yeah. voice. And I think yes. you, want to, you want to develop a conversation with your inner voice that has yeah. a vocabulary. And, you know, and, and where you can go back to it, like, let's take the passions. I think passions, you, you start with finding your passion, which is an overused word, but it really is your talents, your interests, your context, you know, where, uh, and also things like, you know, where you were only child, where you were the sixth child of 11 children, all that stuff that's in, in that whole process. But remember the changes. When I was in high school, and you could probably refer to this, math and science, baseball and basketball, and girls, that was my passion. Go to college, it morphs. Yeah. I played freshman baseball and basketball. That morphed into intramural sports and extracurricular activities, which became very important. Math and science merged into an engineering and then chemical engineering. Yep. And then later on in life, my passion moved from chemical engineering or the engineering process into finance and finally management. And yep. shockingly, my passion, actually I discovered my passion in college. I didn't know it was my passion, but I look back on it and again, writing the book helped me. I started a humor magazine when I, was a, when I was a junior, I was taking physical and organic chemistry. I was crazy. But Rochester was a place where fun went to die. It was a very serious place. And I, I wanted to do some, make people laugh. And, and it, the president was against it. The provost was against it. The librarian was against it. But I created this humor magazine. I put 30 people together. And we did this thing. What happened basically is I found out my passion was putting people together to solve a problem, to produce a product, to answer a question, to get a solution. Excited me. And I found I had a further passion. I got a terrific kick out of having people exceed their own expectations, do more than they thought they could do. I sort of repeat that. I got a, my passion was putting people together to solve a problem, create a product, start a program, find an unsatisfied need, you know, find a latent demand, that kind. Of, but then when I got into it, taking someone and helping them exceed their own expectations. By the way, by doing that, I found out later in life, I exceeded my own expectations. So that was my passion. Now, second one, P is principles. I think early on, most of us get our principles from our religion or from our parents. It's, you know, what are the rules you want to follow? What are the lines you won't cross? When you're in that early stage, you can, do, you can talk about that and think about it. When you get in the game, the real game, and it's happening very quickly in the morning, something comes in. 
you have those moral moral situations established, you can make decisions more easily. And I was taught my first, you know, rule was set by the nuns. And maybe the only rule we need is be doing to others. You know, it was very important. You know, that was a rule. That, I learned it with the golden ruler. I can still feel it. They let you know that you, you learned this. The second rule, which I had to learn, was the second golden rule, which is he who has the gold rules. I was very poor and I wanted to have, you know, a, a, a better life. And I was going to basically seek financial resources. And that lasted until my mid 40s when I traded it in for freedom. Freedom became more important to me than financial resources. By that time, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had enough financial resources that I was satisfied. And instead of going to a fan, when I left Lehman Brothers, instead of going to another fancy large firm, a lot of money, I went to a little tiny firm where I was going to be the boss and I would have freedom to do what I wanted to do. Greatest decision I ever made. But I traded the principle in. And, you know, I, I found that, and all through my life, I, developed, I, I collected principles. And you get one on Bloomberg, you stick it up on your wall. And one that really ser serviced me well, well was, you can accomplish almost anything if you don't worry about who gets the credit. And I used that for years. I just I always, you know, I didn't care. And then later on in life, I found out I want to even step further. I deflected credit. No matter what you do in life, someone else has helped you. And when someone says, Ed, you did a great job, I say, no, no, Barbara, she was the one who did it, or Joan or Sam. And it really makes you feel good. And it makes Sam feel good or Joan or, or Barbara. You know, and I and I did that almost you, you'll see in the book a couple of times when I was they were going to try to, you know, be nice to me. I said, always think about deflecting credit. Then finally, the, and I can go through lots of principles. So I had them up on my wall and everything. But the final one today, I mean, I adopted this 20 years ago, is gratitude. You know, people ask me at my age, you know, how are you? They want to hire you. They want, they want you. They want an organ recital. You know, this hurts and that hurts. I just say I'm grateful because it's true. That's the big, most important principle to me is being grateful. A friend of mine once stopped when he was 70, made a list of 44 people and went around and thanked each one of them, which I think is, he, his book called This is the Moment. I give out to everybody because I think that I, I try to try regularly to thank people because in my age, they, they, they disappear. And it's very sad if you haven't really gone back and said, thanks, you know, Bill, it was really nice to be up in Maine at your place, you know, three years ago or been great having you as a friend all these years. And this guy did that. And uh yeah, I give that, gave the book out to all my trustees at Rochester when I was a chair. But you know, the third P is partners. Find someone to love. You know, but without Barbara, I wouldn't be here today. I mean, I love her more than yesterday and less than tomorrow. That's a fact. And she, she did a lot of work on the book. And she's just my real partner. Find someone who you can support, who will support you, who will pay attention to you. Who someone you can share your life with. I have found that... Uh, I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. You know, good partners, you look in the book, I succeeded. No partners, the wrong partners, I failed. Very important. Partners are key. And in today's world, collaboration is absolutely necessary. You must have, and I, if you have a minute, I can really go too long again, but three kinds of partners. Five partners who can do things that you can't do. In the case of the Humor Magazine, I could draw cartoons. I found a guy. Find things that, that, that people, find partners who can do things better than you can do them. Then find partners. This is the most important one. Find people who do things that you do really well, but you don't want to do. If you find those three partners or partners in one person, you end up doing things that you do well, that you like doing. And that's the perfect life. And then in, at Lehman Brothers, I was introduced to a six foot five graduate from Dartmouth. And he did all the things. He did things I couldn't do. He did things better than I could do. He did things I did well, and he wanted to do them. 
and he spent 35 years with me and he's my real partner. Part, keep, so it's partners and partners, by the way, run through the whole thing. I mean, and they're different. They're different partners when you're in a business than when you're at an Edie Mossen or institution like a, a school. They're, the, 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 the mentality of partners have to be different. You know, you know, in business, you make some decisions. Let's do it. Boy, in a school, you got to get consensus and you have to have people who have that kind of patience and so forth. Then finally, as partners, find a friend. You know, yeah. I told the kids, look to your left, look to find someone you want to spend your whole life with. And I could spend the rest of the afternoon on Dick Wiedemeyer, who, you know, who's my friend at Rochester. It really almost forced me to go to business school. And until he died, he used to regularly worry about me. But anyway, plans. Plans are something, you know, I was I was cornered the other day by a senior at one of the high schools I was in colleges I was talking to. He said, he said a lot of things that give me one thing to do. And I said, write down what you want to do. Write it down what you want to do and how you think you might get there. And I know plans will change. But when you come to that turn of the road, if you've got that written plan, you'll make the turn quicker. Turning the road won't be the end of the road for you if you've got it written down. And then while you're writing this down, think about what's going to happen in your lifetime. Think about the trends, the waves, the cycles in your lifetime. And basically try to catch a wave or a cycle. I have tons of yellow pads that basically have these things on it, constantly trying to find, in our business, our business is finding a trend. And by the way, it's wonderful. I found a bunch of trends when I was in brokerage business. I had to add the right analysts in the right area and so forth. And I found a big wave. I came in to become the chairman of a firm in 1983 when the stock market was, when Dow Jones was 600. And in over 20 years, I grew it more than 20, 25 fold, I guess, 20 times. 20, everybody says, you did a great job. I did a great job. The stock market was up 10 times during that period. I had the wind at my back. So what I wish young people is write your plans, try to get your wind to your back. Those are the four P's. And it does avail. If you do that and you pull it off, you'll end up with the fifth P, which is not in my book, which is purpose. And that's really, the, the you know, if you find your passion. And, and by the way, if you can marry your passion to a wave, boy, you really got it. You find something you really like to do that's really going to happen during your lifetime then you're really home free. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, by the way, making money. Uh, a friend of mine who was a, who was a, he was a surgeon at the University of Rochester found that the way that he found was basically spinal operations in Ethiopia. And he is in love with what he's doing and he is changing Africa because anybody that's got a real spinal problem, they come to him in Ethiopia and he has pictures of his kids. You know, thousands of kids that he's taken care of over the last 20, 25 years. And so you know, it, it's each person to his own. I found this thing in the brokerage business and I loved it and I got a wave and it took me where I, where I wanted to go and allowed me to bring closure to my business. But that's sort of the four Ps. If you'll give me more time, I'll give you the, I'll give you the four buckets of life, which have to, the four Ps, four Ps have to be poured into. And that's self, family, work, and community. Community is my, my, my word for giving back. And it's, that's the juggling act that we all have. Think about it. You're juggling self with your family, with work, and giving giving back comes a little later. You know, first you, you spend all your time on self initially. Then you get into family, which is all it's what's what's all that's left after when everything's said and done. Work is you spend almost too much time on it, but it's something that, you know, captures you and you have to do it. And then community giving back is where you maybe get your greatest satisfaction. But it's a juggling act. And I, my third book, if it ever comes out, uh, the 
The third chapter is that balance is bull. You're never in balance. You're always out of balance. And if you recognize that, then you're, you're ahead. That's why I tell businessmen, you know, if you work too hard, you definitely, you're not spending enough time with your family. If you have a sickness in your family and so forth, you'll spend on, your work will start to suffer. I mean, just to be very, be nasty. When I get a young man or somebody gets divorced, he's no good or she's no good for, for 12 to 18 months because they're focused on that rather than their work. And yeah. in the community, you know, if you're, you know, you're the chairman of the board of the University of Rochester and you got some problems, you know, you're not allowed to work. I, I actually closed my hedge fund because I felt I had to spend full time on it. I really didn't work much during the eight years I was chairman because it was, a, you know, made 70 trips to, the, to Rochester. My wife said to me, for better or for worse, but not for Rochester. So she didn't go home. <laughs> anyway, we only long, have, long, we only long have... answer to a wonderful question. Oh, it's an hour is not enough with you. I can see for sure. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left on the show. I want to real quick. I want to get your contact information in so that uh, people can uh, follow you or uh, contact you. Or I know you with your website, and I know you're on LinkedIn. Uh, what's the best way for people to really get a hold of you or see you? Well, or this, follow this you? you know the, the very complicated uh, website is Ed Hagem. I'm the only Hagem in the world besides my children. Although my daughter thinks she's found some guy in a prison in Morocco, but you know, Ed Hajim, H-A-J-I-M. It's not Hajim, which much sounds much better, but unfortunately it's not. At uh, you know uh, gmail.com, or more importantly, it's a www.edhajim. I think that's what it is. It's my Ed website. Yeah. And the book can be found on Amazon, yeah. uh, on the road less traveled, uh, and by me, and it's on Amazon and Simon and Schuster. So I'm contactable. Uh, I'm, I did join. I stayed, I stayed away from all of social media because I thought that it was a distraction. I have joined uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn now and I'm getting too many hits. So uh, it's just you have to allocate your time to certain kinds of things. And I probably was a little bit of a troglodyte staying off social media, but it allowed me not to flip it flip to place Facebook every night. My wife is on Facebook, so I get it anyway. So it's not bad. <laughs> So it's and I think that, that gets you there, I think. Perfect. We'll, we'll share that for sure. Um, so what's next for you? Like your book is a is truly inspiring. Uh, it's an amazing story. And I, I would not be surprised if I see it on the big screen someday, because I think it's amazing. Uh, what's next? You mentioned maybe another book or two. So well, the, no, the, the, what's next for what's you? Next, and very funny on my my 85th year, my, my, my party, 85th year, 85th year. Barbara put on, she gave out hats from the Nantucket Golf Club, but what's next on it? And <laughs> what's next on it is this book and, and things that, that this book will derive from it. The second book will be a book on the four Ps. I really okay. want to, it's, it's an allegory. It, as a young man uh, goes to an island, he's taken there by a, a captain and a navigator, which could be his mother and his father or somebody. He arrives at the island. Out of the island bushes comes an older man, Archimedes. His name is Marcus, and they walk through the island. They walk to the, the, the village of passions, and it's filled with all kinds of passions, including bad passions. And then they climb a mountain into the village of principles. They spend time looking at the village. Then they come down the mountain into the village of partners, and finally the village of plans. And the conversation mm -hmm. between the two of them goes on all the time. And it basically is the conversation with yourself, really. You know, if you had a chance as a young person, if you could talk to yourself as an old person, you really be way ahead of the ball game. So that's the, that's the second I had book. That. I'm excited about it because, you know, even it's a giggle, but 
if I have enough money and enough time, I'll make a video game out of it. It'll be the first video game where nobody gets shot. Yeah. <laughs> so I can kidding. see young people going to the Village of Passions and spending, you know, like they do a Dungeons and Dragons, it, you know, going through the, 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 the house of music, the house of chemistry, the house of uh, carpentry, whatever else. I have these houses, and then obviously you can't have too many of them in the book, but think about a big village filled with units that have all people in that, that unit do the same thing. And you could go in there and talk to them and see what they do and so forth and so on. So the same thing with principles. We have a room full of philosophy, religion, and, you know, different channels where people go down into those and stay there and sit there and listen to the different religions and different different you know, philosophies and so forth. Uh, in plans, we have, we, have a, we have a big tower that you go into and you study the trends in the beginning of time. You know, it just, it's corny, but it's, it's kind of fun. And the third I'm book will be going to tear apart. Uh, I've written already. It's thir- 32 chapters, each of five or six pages a piece. I'm not sure it'll be the same, but I'm going to take each lesson that I think I learned and be more explicit about it. For example, one of my big lessons is very important is never be a victim. You ask me, how do, why do kids go down? They become victims. You know, I'm, I can't make it. No, yeah. take the energy in being a victim and go forward. I'll, I'll give you a specific big business example. Lehman Brothers, I'm not embarrassed to say I did a fabulous job. I turned around the brokerage business, securities business. The boss and I got didn't go along, kicked me out of there, put me into the into a, to a dead end area called money management. I raised, you know, $8 billion in two and a half years. And he kicked me out of there because I grew it too fast. He just didn't like me. Now, I wouldn't support him for throwing out Mr. Peterson. Pete Peterson was a terrific man and he was a CEO. He would, so he kicked me out. I could have fought him because I was the chairman of six mutual funds. I had outside boards, including one New York Stock Exchange board. I could have gone to the press. I could have hired a lawyer. But I left and I found my dream job, which was to be a CEO of a small investment bank. But it took a lot of energy, a lot of energy for not fighting him, but take it forward. And the same thing when you have setbacks. And I got rejected by every fraternity my freshman year. My sophomore year, every fraternity was, was trying to get me to become a, a pledge. So, you know. You got to get, but you got to take that anger. You got to take that conviction, you know, victimize and take it forward and really push it. Now you do stay angry, you're still angry. I mean, when you have a bad background, you are angry because you, you have something built in when you don't, you look at other people, they have families, they have, you know, they learn to swim, they learn to ride a bicycle. You have anger Ed, and, and it comes out. And we have 15 seconds left and I can't believe how fast it goes. But I want to thank you so much. I am really looking forward to your next book. Oh, I was already? It's already. We're there. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> terrible. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for choosing thank to listen you, to Financially Speaking Radio Show. <laughs> Kathy Cook Noble will return next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Mountain, and 1 p.m. Pacific on InspireChoicesNetwork.com. We hope you'll join us. Until then, have the best week of your life by making the choices that bring you all that you desire.